Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to Esoterica and Nonsense, a podcast where we discuss myths, legends, folk tales, fairy tales, supernatural phenomenon, and religions from around the world. I am your host, Banana Hell. I am an intergalactic dude here just trying to have a good time. And I'm sitting here um, at a beautiful dining room table and I'm babysitting a little cocker spaniel named Henry and he's a stinky boy and he's very nice. And I'm drinking some Celion Gold, an amazing Sri Lankan tea. And I'm very excited today to get into things. I decided that today's episode was going to be about Confucianism and more specifically Confucius, the very man himself. But before I dive in, I wanted to address one thing is that last week during my La Llorona episode, I mentioned that the word Aztec was a westernized word. That is technically correct, but I actually wanted to bring up that I didn't, I actually didn't know this, Um, but the word Aztec derives from a native root, which I didn't realize. So the word Aztec that we say in English comes from the Spanish word Azteca, but that is from the Nahuatl word, which is Aztecatl. So I was a little bit, I was misinformed because I was under the impression that the Spanish had made up this word out of thin air. It does come from native roots. And another side tidbit is literally two or three days after I published my episode of La Llorona, I ended up reconnecting with a friend. I know him through a mutual friend, And anyway, I was catching up with him and I found out that he was born in Oaxaca and a lot of his family still lives there. And he told me his family's telling of La Llorona, which I had never heard before. He told me that his aunts and uncles warned him that around the teenage years, because Latin America is so... Christian and has a lot of Christian values. Some people aren't Christian, but there is a lot of uh, values about having, essentially, long story short, a lot of people have secret romances. And they warned him that if you were ever to meet with a lover at night and your lover didn't say anything to you, but but kind of gave you like flirty eye contact or almost like angry eye contact and walked away, then you would end up following this lover out of town or into like a dark alley. But this this person actually would be La Llorona impersonating your lover. So what they were really saying is if you ever meet with a lover late at night and they're acting odd and don't say anything and start walking away from you, you're not supposed to follow them because they are in fact La Llorona. 
what I found so interesting about this story is it sounds a lot like El Coco, which I haven't done an episode on yet, and that is on my list, believe me. El Coco has a lot of... uh, it's very similar to that iteration of impersonating people that you know and love. There's a really great TV show adapted from a Stephen King novel called The Outsider, and it's a it's a TV show that came out came out I think in 2020. It was really good if you're into scary stuff. It's, I mean. Just so everyone knows, it's pretty fucked up. So, <laughs> but if you're into like crime dramas, if you're into supernatural plus crime, it's gonna be right up your alley. I was hooked. I think I watched it in like two days. Fantastic. Anyway, there are my two little tidbits of La Llorona. And today, I'm really excited to talk about Confucius. I'm a big fan of Confucius. I've been a really big fan of Confucius since I was a teenager. I find I find that not a lot of people in my experience throughout history have approached logical thinking in such a compassionate and heart-centered way, a very emotionally and nature-connected logic, which I value and find very rare. I often find academics is separate from emotions and spirituality where Confucius had a very human identity with logic that was very centered around the better the betterment of, of humankind and and earth kind. Love that. So to start off, Confucianism is considered a way of life, a philosophy, a humanistic and rationalistic relation and way of governing. It is technically considered a religion or a subset of either Taoism or Buddhism because there are some references within Confucianism about your soul, uh, but it is very rare and seldomly mentioned. And is though it is technically considered a subset of a religion, it is more fair to consider it a philosophy and Confucius lived from 551 BC to 479 BC. So that is a long time ago. This is a long, 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 long time ago. This is over 2000 years ago. So before I really jump into it, I'm going to read some of my favorite quotes Part of why Confucius, I think, is so profound and uh, so valuable and a great human mind is that he has said so many deep things in such short snippets. So here I go. Here's here's some of some great Confucius quotes. Everything has beauty, but not everyone sees it. Hmm. In a country well-governed, poverty is something to be ashamed of. In a country bad-governed, wealth is something to be ashamed of. Ooh, well said. 
When it is obvious that goals cannot be reached, don't adjust the goals, adjust the action steps. Mm. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig to graves. He did it again. Real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance. Silence is a true friend who never betrays. Mm, That's beautiful. He who learns but does not think is lost. He who thinks but does not learn is in great danger. When we see men of contrary character, we should turn inwards and examine ourselves. Oh my gosh. If you look into your own heart and you find nothing wrong there, what is there to worry about? What is there to fear? Wow, this is a famous one. Choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. I think we've all heard that one. I think that's very commonly said. This all comes from Confucius. And lastly, the one I'll mention is his statement that by three methods, one may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is the noblest. Second, by imitation, which is the easiest. And third, by experience, which is the bitterest. Mm. It's a very good opening to an idea of how Confucius's mind worked. So Confucius's life explains a lot about how he became the man that we that he is remembered as. He had a very interesting life and I'm going to try my best to make this as compact as possible, but it is also really juicy. So we're going to get into the drama because I love drama. So Confucius was also known in China as Kong Fuzi or Master Kong because his last name was Kong. He is known as a philosopher. However, in his life, he actually spent many years as a politician, specifically in the first half of the Eastern Zhou period. He was born in the state of Lu, which is now known as Nashin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I very well might not be. So he's considered the paragon or the apex, the poster child of Chinese sages. And he considered himself a transmitter for the value of earlier periods, which he believed had been abandoned by the time he was alive. His philosophy emphasized personal and governmental morality and correctness of social relationships, justice, kindness, and sincerity. So they estimated that his birth was around September 28th, 
551 BC, which would make him a Libra, which checks out, balances, am I right? Um, so he was... <laughs> He was born in in Shao, which is now the modern-day Shandong province. And at the time, the area was nationally controlled by the kings of Zhao. And where he lived was technically independent under the local lords of Lu, which was the state. And they ruled from the nearby city of Kufu. So... How his life trajectory went was his father, known as Kong He, was an elderly commandment of a local Lu politician. So his father worked as a defendant of the Dukes of Song, which belonged to the Shang dynasty. And this dynasty had actually preceded the Zhao dynasty, which he was born, which Confucius was born into. So his father worked under a dynasty that had since been finished. So his when his father died, sadly, when he was only three years old, and because of this, his mother became very impoverished and did not have very much money. And so he was raised by his single mother, and they were incredibly poor. Fast forward to him being 19, he married a young woman known as Lady Shiguan, and... Sadly, when I looked her up, there was not a lot of information about her. I think that's sadly kind of classic when it comes to famous men who lived a couple thousand years ago. But they had a child when Confucius was about 20 years old. They, he was a boy. They named him Kong Li. And later they had two daughters, one who died very young, and the other they named Kong Kiao. And... During this time, Confucius attended a school for commoners where he studied the six arts. And these six arts were, one was rites, referring to rites of ceremony, rituals, quote, good form and natural law. One of the other arts was music. There was archery, charity, calligraphy, and mathematics. It was believed that men who excelled at these six arts had reached a state of perfection and, quote, become the perfect gentleman. <laughs> so in his early 20s, he worked for various government positions. He started as a bookkeeper and then eventually worked as jobs like a caretaker of sheep and horses and which is kind of bouncing around uh, very common government positions so before his mother was 40 she ended up dying and he spent a lot of his early life working saving all of his money to give him to give his mother a proper burial which was considered uh, a very important right in their culture at the time and the state he lived in, which I mentioned was Lu, at, at this time was headed by a ruling duke. And under the duke were three ruling families who held bureaucratic 
positions. So this is where the drama begins, okay? I'm going to try my best to keep this straight. It gets confusing. But if we can just remember that there was three families, okay? So the three families were the G family, and the G family were the minister of the masses, which we would call the prime minister. So they were in charge of like people and running the people. There was the Meng family, which were the minister of works, as in like professions and, and bureaucracy and just all of that. And then the Shu family, which were the ministers of war. So these three families were under the duke, but they were kind of like lords and they had um, palaces that had private walls and were each in charge of different groups of people under this state known as Lu. So in the winter of 505 BC, a man named Yang Hu, who was a retainer of the Ji family, he worked under the Ji family, which I mentioned were the minister of masses. He decided to start a rebellion and seize power of the Ji family. And it took four years, but four years later in 501, the three families had this man expelled from the state. So during this time, Confucius was getting older. He was just about 50. And he was actually gaining popularity at the time. He had been raised in poverty and had had a lot of these entry government jobs. And he had spent a lot of his life contemplating how one could actually be a leader ethically and how one could actually have a healthy kingdom with healthy people. Because he, right, he wasn't raised with wealth. So he was raised thinking about the quote, common man. So he was gaining a lot of popularity and, and speaking a lot about philosophy and ethics. And specifically, he was actually getting popular with these three families um, because his teaching centered around proper conduct, righteousness, in order to achieve a loyal and legitimate government. So I think part of why the three families were interested in his philosophies is that it, it did talk a lot about how to get loyal I guess commoners. So I think I think the people in power were more interested in how to like get people to be loyal to them, where, you know. So I guess for slightly selfish reason reasons, but Confucius genuinely wanted to have a legitimate government and recognized that to have a legitimate government, everyone had to be loyal to this government because it would have to have equal participation and respect between individuals. So. In 501, which is the same year that they expelled Yang Hu, this guy who started this rebellion, they expelled him in 501. In the same year, Confucius became appointed governor of a small town within the state of Lu. And eventually, he rose to the position of minister of crime, which is at this point a very high position. And Confucius started talking about that he wanted to return authority of the state by dismantling the power of the three families to achieve a centralized government. So he was basically proposing that the three families should be dissolved, which, you know, to be saying openly is like 
pretty ballsy at the time because these three families are like lords. They have a lot of power. In 500, which is just a year after he became the minister of crime, a local governor of Hu, and his name was Hu Fan, revolted against his lord of the Shu family. So now we have a rebellion within the Shu family, one of the other three families. And the Shu family, like I mentioned, was the minister of war. So with help of a loyalist official, the Meng and Shu families forced Hu Fan to flee the state. So this was a very quick rebellion. They resolved it almost immediately. However, because of this second rebellion, it actually helped catalyze Confucius's argument to dismantle the hereditary ruling families. He was offering that because these families were ruling simply because of their hereditary inheritance, people would never fully respect them and respect their right to rule, and that it was always going to cause resentment, which I think is a pretty valid argument. <laughs> so within a year and a half, Confucius was actually able to convince the three families to take down the walls that surrounded their land and their strongholds. Essentially, each family, very much like a lord, had land that also had like fortresses on this land. So very quickly after Confucius convinced the three families to take down their walls, um, someone who worked under the G family revolted and took control of the G fort. And he actually launched an attack and entered the capital of Lu. Drama! So, funnily enough, Confucius actually knew that this third revolt was going to happen. The man who launched the revolt was known as Gongshan Furao. 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 Let's Gongshan. So, Basically, before this third revolt, this man, Gongshan, had actually approached Confucius and had tried to convince him to join him. Confucius had actually considered the idea because he was interested in implementing a new government and he had a lot of philosophies about how to change the local government in China. However, he had decided not to join Gongshan because he believed that it was against moral, proper moral values to have a violent revolution. And so by principle, he said no, even though the Ji family had dominated the Lu state for generations and they had actually exiled the previous duke and they themselves had had a violent revolution. So he did truly consider this due to the nature of how the G family obtained their power, but he decided against it. So during Gongsheng's revolt, one of Confucius's disciples, known as Shang Yu, who had actually become a governor because Confucius had given him a referral to one of the three families. So this disciple of Confucius, Zhong Yu, who was a governor, he actually managed to keep the duke and the heads of the three families together. And he let them stay in a safe place. And Confucius had arranged for them uh, to move to the... G strongholds in the palace grounds. So all of them moved and 
Confucius, because he was the minister of crime at this point, ordered two officers to lead an assault against the rebels, and the rebels were defeated. There is a alleged rumor that one of these officers that Confucius had ordered to assault the rebels was actually working with the rebels, but the story goes, they say, that um, because Confucius ordered them in front of the duke, the officer had to comply or else he would have been killed on sight, apparently. Again, this is very dramatic, very, very dramatic. The action movie buff in me is like, this would be a great action movie. Fun fact, there is a movie made about the life of Confucius. Uh, it's a Chinese film. I believe it was made in 2010. It's on my list to watch. I don't know how accurate or inaccurate it is, but I'm hoping that it's that this part of the movie is like action filmy because this is very, this is like very boy drama. Uh, <laughs> this is like boy drama central. Anyway, so like I said, these two officers defeated the rebels and immediately after the revolt, the G family decided to take down the walls completely of their strongholds and land. So this entire saga, this entire debacle gave Confucius more public respect and it portrayed his foresight and practical political ability and specifically his insight into human character. Um, you know, I think before people saw him just as a philosopher, but he had been warned that this was going to happen and he had actually foreseen all this happening and that's why he had been asking these three families to take their walls down. So after all of this, one of the three families, the Meng family, decided that they didn't want to take the walls of their city down. After all of this, two years later in 498, the Duke actually decided that he wanted the walls down and he led an army and attempted to siege the region and tear the walls down of the Meng family, but the Duke actually failed. And so basically because of Confucius's polarizing ideas and ideals, he actually became in direct opposition of a lot of the men in power in his state. And he had made a lot of very powerful enemies. So all of this respect that he had gained was turning more into respect of the common people. And a lot of the men in, in power were starting to get very resentful of him because, you know, his philosophies that were gaining popularity had a lot to do with dismantling the power of individual men. So he was, com he was coming for them. Um, so, <laughs> oh my gosh. So this is where the drama, if you thought there was drama, there's more drama. So during this time, there was a neighboring state known as Qi. Yeah, the Qi state, Q-I, Qi. And this state was hearing that the state of Lu was becoming more powerful and was just having a prosperous time. So according to one account, the, the, <laughs> one of the powerful men within the Qi state decided to send over 100 good horses and 80 beautiful dancing girls to the Duke of Lu in order to, quote, distract him. <laughs> <laughs> in 
And I'm laughing because it's really that easy. Like if you send over 80 beautiful women who are trained dancers to like any man who likes women, like I think we all know what would happen. I'm just like, it is actually kind of a brilliant sabotage because it's, it's nonviolent and (laughs) basically his plan worked. So for, as the story goes, the Duke indulged himself in pleasure and didn't attend to his duties for three days. So you might think, oh, three days, that's not too long. The thing is, this guy's like the Duke of an entire region and there is a lot of work to be done all the time. And apparently he spent three days raging. I mean, I, I kind of get it. But also knowing that like this is just pure sabotage. I mean, he totally fell for it. And yes, it was that easy. So yeah, I think I think we would be in a better world though if sabotage was all done through giving people letting people indulge in their guilty pleasures or I guess just pleasures than, than violence. I'm, I'll give this guy credit. This was a nonviolent way to, to sabotage an empire. So you know what? I'm actually, I'm all for it. Um, as long as the sex was consensual caveat. Okay. So Confucius actually was very disappointed with his Duke. Um, he found it to be very irresponsible and, and kind of proved this idea that this was not a moral government because the Duke didn't have the people's best interests at heart and he had his personal interests at heart. So at this point, Confucius had resolved to leave the state to seek better opportunities. However, to leave immediately would bring shame to the Duke because by leaving then, it would expose the Duke's misbehavior so, so Confucius decided to wait a little bit of time for smaller offenses to add up and then he could leave quietly without bringing shame upon the Duke, which I don't know. I mean, I guess I respect him. I don't know. <laughs> He's like really taking morality very seriously, which is why I, I respect him. And I, I'm all for nonviolent communication and nonviolent action for the betterment of self and people. So you go Confucius. So basically fast forward a little while, they had a great feast and the Duke neglected to send Confucius a portion of the sacrificial meat, which was traditional uh, for every man at the table to taste the sacrificial meat. Confucius was skipped. So Confucius took this as a green light to leave the state. So in 497, Confucius left the state of Lu without resigning, ultimately because he had failed to dismantle the three fortified cities. He had taken that as a personal loss. And kind of, yeah, so I mean, I guess I guess you could say that he left as, I guess he fled because he didn't even actually formally resign. So he fled his state. This is actually why I respect him so much because after he had a very stable job, and I think most of us, especially once you have kids, it would be hard not to keep at your job. I think especially at this time in history, there wasn't the opportunity to be necessarily like an entrepreneur 
or, uh, you know, especially with a government job, you, you had a legal duty to fulfill. So he decided to, to leave because of his moral proclivities. And he actually spent the next about 20 years of his life traveling the countryside and becoming like a traveling philosopher that's very traveling troll energy, which I, I love. That's, that's basically my brand. So he began his long journey around the states of China, um, from specifically the Northeast and Central China, and shared his philosophical and political beliefs. And sadly, he never really full, fully saw his, his ideas implemented or really take off. Um, but he did it anyway. And eventually, he was invited back to his home province at the age of 68, when he was invited by the chief minister of the state known as Ji Kangji. So from then on, when he was invited back, he formally taught students. They estimated he taught about 72 to 77 students, and he taught them the old wisdom of China via the texts known as the five classics. There actually is talk that he there were six classics, but some of them were destroyed and burned, so now they're referred to as the five classics. We'll get into that in a second. And sadly, he actually outlived his two sons and his favorite disciples. So his favorite disciples and two sons died before he did. Um, and eventually he died of natural causes between the ages 71 and 72. And he was then buried in the Konglin Cemetery, which is in the Shadong province, which at the time was still the state of Lu. So that is a that is the briefest summary I could give on his life while keeping all the juicy, dramatic elements in. But I wanted to touch on all of that because I think it does shed a lot of light into who he was as a human being. He was very interested in taking care of like the quote common man and was very interested in trying to create an idyllic society via a government that was led through ethics and equality and knowledge. So let's dive into his philosophy. Like I mentioned, it is actually considered a religion, but it is much more of a secular morality. And Confucius titled himself as a transmitter who invented nothing. So he, he, he did not want to be considered an, an inventor of a philosophy, simply a transmitter of a philosophy. He valued study as the most important life practice. The Confucian system is based on empathy and understanding others rather than ordained rules. Mm. I'm going to repeat that. The Confucian system is based on empathy and understanding others rather than ordained rules. That is powerful. So one of his core teachings was that rules were too general, and that judgment had to be cultivated through acquiring knowledge. That's super deep. I just learned, shout out to Kaya, tools, not rules. Ooh. Instead of implementing rules for yourself or for others, using tools to communicate 
and to process a specific encounter where rules cannot necessarily, rules aren't always one size fits all for individuals and for specific scenarios in our lives. So Confucius deeply emphasized teachings that personal example and action were more important than explicit and specific rules over behavior. He believed that self-cultivation and personifying high morals and attainment of skilled judgment was more important than rules. That is powerful. And again, what I love so much about this is it's acknowledging the power we all have as individuals, and it's genuinely just giving respect to people. It's giving respect, but also obligation for each person to actually work on themselves, to learn and to acquire wisdom and knowledge, to get to a place where they can have skilled judgment instead of needing rules. Mm, Powerful. His teachings rarely relied on reasoned argument and ethical ideals, but rather he conveyed kind of indirectly through illusion and innuendo. And this is why it, it mixed so beautifully eventually with Taoism and Buddhism. He never claimed to be Taoist or Buddhist, and Buddhism didn't really get super popular in China until after his death. But these are all very um, kind of Taoist and Buddhist principles to express very deep concepts in almost poem form. And that's one thing that Confucius really liked about the classics and older texts of Chinese literature, that a lot of things were expressed in, in poetry form to express much deeper ideas. So one of his most famous teachings is known as the silver rule. And this is actually what we would call the golden rule. And so a very famous retelling of it, um, and this is a classic like Confucius storytelling method where the a disciple asks a question and Confucius answers it. So there is a famous conversation where a disciple asks Confucius, is there any one word that could guide a person throughout life? And Confucius replied, how about reciprocity? Never impose onto others what you would not choose for yourself. Right? I also, um, another like uh, same format, I guess it's not the same format, but I, I, I once saw a documentary on Confucius years ago, and um, there was this great little soundbite of Confucius' genius where Confucius and his disciples were traveling through the country and came upon a woman in a small village crying and crying and crying. And so Confucius asked this woman... Henry is sleeping on the floor and he's moving around a lot. And so I apologize for the background noise. He asks the crying woman, why do you cry? And she says, I cry because my husband and all of my sons have been eaten by a tiger. And one of his disciples asked, why haven't you moved from this village? 
if there's a man-eating tiger on the loose? And the woman replied, I'm afraid to move because I fear that I would move to a place with a more oppressive government. And Confucius turned to his disciples and he said, this is true. A man-eating tiger is less terrifying than an oppressive government. (laughs) I had to think about that one because at first I was like, no. And I actually, I would have to agree. An oppressive government is terrifying. There's so much more systematic control and terror that can be done with organized humans with weapons of war than a single man-eating tiger. I mean, that can really be fixed with like a fortified fence, you know? So he makes a he makes a very compelling point. And I, I really like I really like these sound bites. I mean, these are sentence long ideas that actually say so much. So virtues to the self are highly valued in Confucianism, and specifically sincerity and cultivation of knowledge were considered the utmost importance of priorities. Virtuous action towards other beings with virtuous and sincere thought all begins with knowledge. So the idea was that actual virtue and specifically virtuous actions and being good towards others had to be cultivated by it acquiring knowledge. And I think that's actually very true because personal virtue is one thing, but you one must learn a lot to know how to positively affect and help others because it is very complicated when you start thinking about righteousness and virtue because you can have an idea of what someone may need, but you may not actually know what that person needs, let alone thousands, hundreds, and hundreds of thousands of people. Knowledge is the beginning of cultivating virtuous action. So one of his core teachings was that a virtuous disposition without knowledge is susceptible to corruption. Fact. Confucius stated that virtuous action without sincerity is not true righteousness. Mmm without sincerity. And he also stated that cultivating knowledge and sincerity is also important for one's own sake. He was making the argument that Confucius said that the superior person loves learning for the sake of learning and righteousness for the sake of righteousness. His theory is exemplified in the concept of Li. And Li is an idea which is broken down into the three important conceptual aspects of life. One, which is ceremonies and rites associated with ancestors and deities of various types, of all things sacred. And two, social and political institutions. And three, etiquette of daily behavior. So, Lee was a concept of personal self-betterment in order for the betterment of human society. 
So some people believed that Li were actually principles given to us from heaven. But Confucius stressed that the development of Li was not given to us from the heavens, but was actually developed by the actions of the great sage leaders throughout human history. And his discussions of this concept of Li attempted to redefine the idea to refer all actions committed by a person to build the ideal society rather than conforming to standards and practices, ceremonies, or law. He was all about personal initiative in actions on a moment-to-moment basis instead of following a rule book. It was about always learning more and attaining more self-awareness to become a better individual. This is progressive. I respect this so much. So in the early Confucian tradition, Li was centered around timing. Uh, So it was believed that balancing existing norms while making ethical decisions using moral judgment was vital to create an ethical social fabric. This concept of Li is closely related to the concept of Yi, which is based on the idea of reciprocity. So Yi can be translated into righteousness or more simply um, what is ethically best for a specific context. Um, So as opposed to an action done out of self-interest, Yi would be how to to make a decision or an action that is in the best interest of all individuals. And philosophically, that's a hard thing to grasp because I think the more knowledge that you attain in your life, it's it gets pretty clear that it's hard to make a decision that is best for all individuals because a lot of decisions someone loses. So th- this is this is definitely a conceptual ideal, which I like. I respect that they were even talking about this. So while pursuing self-interest is not inherently bad, Confucius stated that one would be more righteous if their life was based upon following a path designed to enhance the greater good. The concept of Yi is linked to the core value Ren. (laughs) Okay, so I, I know I'm like defining a lot of words, but just to recap so we don't get lost, Li is about personal betterment by sacred rights, social and political institutions, and etiquette of daily behavior. Yi is the idea of reciprocity and or ethical decisions in specific contexts. And this kind of all traces back to the idea or value of Ren. And Ren consists of five basic virtues, which are seriousness, generosity, sincerity, diligence, and kindness. So Ren is a virtue of the perfect fulfilling of one's responsibility towards another. So this is known as benevolence, humanness, selflessness. To develop one's spontaneous response of Ren so that these could guide action intuitively is better than living by the rules of Yi. Basically, what Confucius is trying to say is that if someone is truly 
has spent a whole life contemplating on how to be kind towards others and how to be the best version of self, then intuitively they become someone who is benevolent and selfless so that in a specific situation, they don't have to start intellectualizing how they can be selfless or how they can be benevolent or how they can be caring. That's ingrained in their nature because they've spent so much time contemplating and trying to be that. So you end up becoming what you study for so long. So Confucius asserts that virtue is actually a mean between two extremes. So his example for this is that a properly generous person gives the right amount, not too much, not too little, right? Like a, like a good parent is someone who gives plenty to their kid, but does not spoil the child. That's kind of this idea. So virtue would be a perfect balance between restraint and giving. So another piece of Confucianism, which I found really interesting and I had never learned before, was music. And apparently Confucius believed that music was an integral part of ritual and rite practices. Some Chinese scholars state that Confucianism is really about the idea of rites and rituals. And really the idea of rites and sacred ritual were the starting of an individual to participate in a sacred social function, which allows each individual to have a practice that connects them to human nature and connects them to the harmony with our reality. And I actually had never thought about that because I was raised in a household that did not have a religion or had that many sacred rites. I will say that my parents always celebrated the winter solstice and I still practice the winter solstice every year. I think that's like the only, the solstices are really the holidays that I practice. And I actually really agree. I do think that one reason why society in the United States is kind of vain and <laughs> kind of like an infant social society is because there is not a lot of social rights. And I have noticed that the cultures and the countries I've visited that have the strongest sense of self, even if that sense of self may be flawed or may have whatever misogyny, homophobia, but like cultures that had the most amount of identity were cultures that practiced religious rites, but also music was a big part of that. And I, I have found that the countries that have music as a part of their social identity have um, a healthier relationship with love and affection. That's just my personal observation. I'm just a guy, you guys. I'm just one guy, okay? I'm just one guy. So Confucius believed that music was actually a harmonization of heaven and earth. And the rites were the order of heaven and earth. It's a very beautiful sentiment. Um, it actually makes me think of a lot of other ancient cultures that actually, they studied music as a part of the core rhetoric of education, mostly because it was considered a mathematical practice and kind of a bridge between mathematics and the heavens. And um, 
beautiful. And I, I would love for modern culture to bring that back of, of bringing music back into the core curriculum because there, there are parallels between math and, but also astrology within the math of musics of music. Uh, anyway, so he believed that making music in rites and sacred practices was the order that makes it possible for society to prosper. Confucius drew inspiration from the texts known as the Xijing and the classic of music, which was considered one of his six classics. And like I mentioned before, now it's known as the five classics because um, almost all of it was lost during the Han Dynasty due to a large, massive burning of a lot of Confucian texts. Great. <laughs> um, so the Xi Jing is actually one of the current Confucian classics, and it is a book of poetry that contains a diversified variety of poems and folk songs. And a lot of the Xi Jing refers to poems of nature, of love, of sacred rites, but some of them even bring up political satire. And a lot of these poems, um, Confucius would actually decipher and use as learnable lessons for his students. So I'm almost done. Bear with me. Confucius, even though a lot of this boils down to philosophy and and how art and sacred practice plays into that. Ultimately, Confucius really was a philosopher, a political philosopher. All of this boiled down to how we as a as a human race, but I guess at a smaller level, how China could unify as an ethical and moral government that could have a prosperous, a pros, did I say phosphorus? Prosperous human people, a population. That's the word I was looking for, a prosperous human population. So this entire political philosophy was based in ethical thought. Confucius argued that the best government is one that rules with Li, which is rights, ethical behavior, what have you. So that rules with Li and people's natural morality, not by using bribery and coercion, right? So instead of like saying, don't kill someone or else you'll go to jail, it's like spending a lifetime with people, building sacred rituals and working on that person's natural morality instead of, right, just putting rules in place or bribery to make them do what you want. I mean, I'd have to agree, fuck. <laughs> I think that's a pretty straightforward and pretty pretty good idea, Confucius. I'm kind of on the same page. He said that if people be led by laws and uniformity sought to be given to them by punishment, they will try to avoid the punishment but have no sense of shame. If they be led by virtue and uniformity sought to be given to them by the rules of propriety, they will have a sense of shame and moreover will become good. So 
really what he's saying is if punishments are the only things we're using to make people do things, they will avoid punishment, but they won't really feel bad for like whatever, committing a crime that may actually have huge repercussions on our human society, where if they are led by virtue and they are driven of having a prosperous society and healthy relationships and a healthy population, they will have a better sense and moral compass. So by having this internal sense of duty, there's no need of, quote, evil punishment. And a person will actually have a feeling of what they did wrong and what the, quote, right decision is. And this is a pretty progressive idea because really, I think a lot of governments, I mean, since like the beginning, since like civil, okay, disclaimer, in my opinion, I feel that almost every culture is banking on people abusing their personal power and exploiting others and or taking from others. And a lot of A lot of cultures, you know, implement punishment as a way to control people. And this really is giving responsibility and also belief in each individual as a person that they have what it takes to learn what it means to be discerning of what right and wrong is. But also, right, making that an obligation and um, a responsibility. I respect this. Yes, I do. I respect this. Confucius thought fondly of older Chinese political philosophies. And he wished to restore a lot of old ideals, one of which is known as the mandate of heaven or heaven's will. At first, I was uncomfortable by this because I know about the mandate of heaven. We touched on this in world history in my freshman year of high school, okay? Uh, Shout out to Dr. Lumsden, okay? (laughs) There's my Dr. Lumsden impersonation, okay? Uh, Basically... The Mandate of Heaven was used in ancient and imperial China, and it was a mandate that they used to legitimize the rule of the king or emperor. So this doctrine states that the actual heavens embodies natural order and the will of the universe, the as above, so below concept. So basically, they believed that the heavens bestowed the mandate onto each ruler, meaning each ruler, each emperor was chosen by the heavens. So that would make the emperor, quote, the son of heaven. So under this belief system, it was written that if a ruler was overthrown, that it was interpreted as an indication that the ruler was unworthy and had lost the mandate. Also, things like natural disasters and famines were also considered to be divine intervention or divine retributions, showing that the heavens were displeased with the ruler. So I actually uh, had forgotten that piece of the mandate of heaven because it ended up becoming a way to justify that you know emperors were just passing down the crown to their son and it would turn into these long dynasties of hereditary 
inheritance. Uh, so there was not a lot of overthrowing. And, you know, that's, that's what ended up happening. But in these actual original texts of the Mandate of Heaven, it was expressed that a ruler didn't necessarily inherit the title, but the ruler was to be qualified for the job. And their job was specifically to unite all people under heaven and bestow peace and prosperity on the people. So that's a beautiful sentiment, right? And I think that is a very idyllic vision. Um, you know, I personally wonder... I wonder all the time, like, what is the ideal human society, you know? I mean, ideally, we wouldn't, in my mind, ideally, we wouldn't need a ruler or, like, a king slash queen. I mean, I think, like, one of the biggest issues is that there's often, like, one person in charge of a said group of people or country. And I think that leads to a lot of problems because how how can someone not be corrupt in that position? Even if you start uncorrupted. I think after 10, 20, 30 years of having access to wealth and all these things, I think you end up becoming corrupted. So is there a way to have a society of people where if a big decision be made, it's made by someone who has spent their whole years as a philosopher and is still living humbly, like living in a hut somewhere? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what an ideal society looks like. I think this is very idyllic, but I, I do wonder... If there's one man, one cisgendered straight man in charge of a nation, can that nation ever be balanced and united under heaven or united spiritually as a nation? I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. Like I, I, I do think I really, I've, I think that Confucius is on the right track, but I do wonder if some of his ideals are jaded by the idea that like, they lived in a time where they could not imagine anything but a king. Um, but I also don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it's really complicated. Human, human society and human culture is really complicated because if you fall through the cracks as a child and are not loved or raised um, with these ideals of, of morality and rights, then who's to say that you would not be a corrupted adult and thus create another chain of corruption that lasts thousands of years anyway <laughs> that was a long tangent um i uh i really appreciate i really appreciate confucian philosophy because it is very straightforward and is it deals with the common issue that i think has plagued humanity forever which is how do we have a healthy society that is good for all of us that's a really good question and i don't i don't have an answer <laughs> So, in fact, because Confucius believed that the mandate of heaven was to be something to bring back into his current, his current climate in China, um, he was often seen as a conservatist. Um, but actually, he was a proponent of moral and ethical qualifications over lineage, which was actually more progressive than the dynasties of the past had taken the mandate of heaven because like i mentioned the mandate of heaven became a way to justify lineage and bloodline whereas 
Confucius hoped to reinstate the mandate of heaven as a way to have rulers who are genuinely qualified and had ethical proclivities. He believed that an ideal ruler would be devoted to the people and that they would strive for personal and social perfection and that they would spread their own virtues to the people instead of imposing, quote, proper behavior via laws and rules. Boom. Yes. I mean, I, I like this idea. Um, I will point out that this, like, tidbit, uh, you know, the he pronoun is always used, and already I have issue with that. Um, like, I think these ideals would be so much better stated with using, like, gender-neutral pronouns. Just saying. So Confucius also believed that the power of rulers should be limited. Yes. Um, he stressed that representing truth and honesty via language was a crucial factor in ruling integrity. Even the facial expression had to convey honesty. Ooh, that's a deep one. That's a deep one. And that reminds me of some of the key principles to Jainism and Zoroastrianism, which I will get into on later episodes. But I happen to agree with this idea a lot. I think truth is one of the biggest proponents of ethics. And by being 100% truthful all the time, it allows the world to become a better place. And if you start lying to others, you end up lying to yourself. And that's a dark road to go down. But to even have honest facial expressions, that's, that's a big one. And I, I respect that Confucius brought that up. So in his ideal world, a ruler would portray pop proper behavior through their own actions and words by leading correctly and therefore force and punishment would be unnecessary. So while Confucius was alive, sadly, a lot of people in power felt very threatened, mostly because he had put the well-being of people as a number one priority. And a lot of people in power were, you know, made their money off of being in power. And by having other people with more personal rights and more personal integrity, I think the concept of mutiny really kind of was in the back of a lot of people's minds who were in power. So after Confucius died when he was in his early 70s, his philosophy was really kept alive by his grandson, G.C. or Z.C., and he continued his philosophical school. He also had a lot of disciples that went on to serve in many royal courts in different parts of China, and this actually spread his philosophical and political ideas around the empire. So he had two very famous disciples that were proponents of two very different pieces of his teachings. One of his disciples was known as Mencius, and the other one known as Junzi. And essentially, Mencius emphasized that innate goodness lived inside of all human beings, and that our 
innate goodness was a source of ethical intuitions that would guide all people towards Ren, Yi, and Li, which is basically just being an ethical, moral human being. Whereas Junzi emphasized the realistic and materialistic aspects of the Confucius teachings. And he really stressed that morality had to be taught in society through tradition and in individuals through training. Personally, I feel like both of these are very true. I think every person is born with an innate goodness within their hearts. And I also think that as you grow up, that these things have to be fed and refined and taught. I mean, I think every child is born perfect, but I mean, if you spend your whole life being exploited and abused and hurt, it's hard to ask that person, you know, to quote, turn the other cheek and just like be nice. I think that takes a long time to cultivate that within yourself. And even if you live a charmed life, it does take training to to not only care about other people, but actually develop the skills to to know how to help in a in a non-problematic way. So I think I think both of his famous disciples are onto something, and I think with their powers combined, that I mean, there you have Confucianism. Um, so sadly, over time during the Qin Dynasty. Many Confucianists were killed and books were burned due to the oppositions of the philosophical beliefs of rulers. There was a movement at the time known as legalism and long story short, I mean, like I mentioned, a lot of people in power really had a big issue with Confucianism and that is how one of the sixth classics was lost. It's just, it's a, it's a huge bummer. Henry's awake from his nap and he's sniffing around. Um, it is really sad, PSA to all human beings out there. Um, no matter how much a certain school of thought or even like some crazy shit goes down, I think like erasing human history and burning books is some of the most detrimental thing we can do to us as a people. Because even if that literature is horrible and like hard to make come to terms with I think there's something to learn from every piece of human history and by erasing a piece of human history we're missing out on a vital piece of um, reflection and self-awareness as a human race I think personally that we exist more as a ant colony and less as a group of individuals I think we are a zeitgeist of thoughts and emotions and I think it is in our best interest to try our best to really look at ourselves in the mirror not just at our own actions but our actions as a whole around planet earth and I've noticed um, that's like a really common theme in human history that books are burned and I think that it's horrible <laughs> and I um, as someone from the United States I uh, I've noticed that there's a lot of American history that we have erased that we don't like to talk about and um, I think it's detrimental to us moving forwards as a culture because I don't think we've even been able to come to terms with some of the crimes against humanity we've committed because we don't even know that we committed them <sighs> anyway um, as time progressed during the Han and Tang dynasties, Confucianism spread and was made the official imperial philosophy. 
and it was actually re required reading for the civil service examination starting in 140 BC and continued until the end of the 19th century. That's a long time. That's like almost 2,000 years. That's incredible. Um, and later, as Buddhism became more widespread, Confucianism served as a complementary political philosophy with Buddhism. I mean, Confucianism really does take on a lot of ideals that are shared within Taoism and Buddhism, and it just has more of a political and applicable lens within human society. So it really helped Confucianism grow its roots deeper into Chinese philosophy and Chinese culture. And I just, um, it's sad that it took almost, you know, around 400 years after the, his death for for people to really cling on to what he was saying. But I, I really respect Confucius and the choices he made as an individual because here we are thousands of years later still speaking of his philosophies and his philosophy grew out of him making personal decisions that he believed to be right versus on what he needed to make money or what he was told was the right thing to do. And I genuinely respect that so much. And to this day, these ideas are very progressive. I mean, here we are like over 2000 years later, and we're at least in the country that I'm from, the United States, most ideals are set in place with punishments as an incentive. And with enough money, you can buy your way out of almost any allegation. That's a fact. I don't think a lot of people want to admit it, but it's true. Money can buy your way out of almost any allegation. And I think um, when we live in a society where punishment is the reason why you're not doing something, I don't, I don't think that's right. And I, I don't think that's correct. And I think sometimes religions employ the same tactics where they use fear to get you to do or not do something. And... Uh, Okay, Henry, is it dinner time? Henry's getting hungry. But you know what? That was right on time because that concludes my episode on Confucianism. I would like to bring up that I am just one man. I am one guy. I'm doing this research by myself. As I mentioned in the beginning of my episode, sometimes I overlook things. Sometimes there's pieces of the story I didn't cover. Sometimes there's things I didn't find. And I... <laughs> I want to empower everyone to do some research. If I inspired you, if there's something that you're interested in, do some research. If there's something you actually already know about that you want to inform me of that I overlooked, send me an email at esotericaandnonsense at gmail.com. If you want to support my podcast, you can do so at anchor.fm slash esotericaandnonsense. If you want to give me feedback at all, please send me an email. I'm so grateful that you listened to this episode of this podcast. I'm so grateful that you are here on planet Earth at this time. Every human is magical. Every human is sacred. And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Have a beautiful day, evening, morning, life, incredible, and... I will catch you next week.